Hybridge Audio presents The Innovator's Dilemma When New Technologies Cause Great Firms to Fail by Clayton M. Christensen Read for you by Don Leslie This program is about the failure of companies to stay atop their industries when they confront certain types of market and technological change. It's not about the failure of simply any company, but of good companies, the kinds that many managers have admired and tried to emulate, the companies known for their abilities to innovate and execute. Companies stumble for many reasons, of course. Among them, bureaucracy, arrogance, tired executive blood, poor planning, short-term investment horizons, inadequate skills and resources, and just plain bad luck. But this audio program is not about companies with such weaknesses. It's about well-managed companies that have their competitive antenna up, listen astutely to their customers, invest aggressively in new technologies, and yet still lose market dominance. Such seemingly unaccountable failures happen in industries that move fast and in those that move slow, in those built on electronics technology and those built on chemical and mechanical technology, in manufacturing and in service industries. Sears Roebuck, for example, was regarded for decades as one of the most astutely managed retailers in the world. At its zenith, Sears accounted for more than 2% of all retail sales in the United States. It pioneered several innovations critical to the success of today's most admired retailers. For example, supply chain management, store brands, catalog retailing, and credit card sales. Yet no one speaks about Sears as a powerhouse of a company today. Somehow, it completely missed the advent of discount retailing and home centers. In the midst of today's catalog retailing boom, Sears has been driven from that business. Indeed, the very viability of its retailing operations has been questioned. It is striking to note that Sears received its accolades at exactly the time, in the mid-1960s, when it was ignoring the rise of discount retailing and home centers, the lower-cost formats for marketing name-brand hard goods that ultimately stripped Sears of its core franchise. Sears was praised as one of the best-managed companies in the world, at the very time it let Visa, and MasterCard usurped the enormous lead it had established in the use of credit cards and retailing. In some industries, this pattern of leadership failure has been repeated more than once. Consider the computer industry. IBM dominated the mainframe market, but missed, by years, the emergence of mini-computers, which were technologically much simpler than mainframes. In fact, no other major manufacturer of mainframe computers became a significant player in the mini-computer business. Digital Equipment Corporation created the mini-computer market and was joined by a set of other aggressively managed companies. Data General, Prime, Wang, Hewlett-Packard, and Nixdorf. 
But each of these companies, in turn, missed the desktop personal computer market. It was left to Apple Computer, together with Commodore, Tandy, and IBM's standalone PC division, to create the personal computing market. Apple, in particular, was uniquely innovative in establishing the standard for user-friendly computing. But Apple and IBM lagged five years behind the leaders in bringing portable computers to market. Similarly, the firms that built the engineering workstation market, Apollo, Sun, and Silicon Graphics, were all newcomers to the industry. As we shall see, the list of leading companies that failed when confronted with disruptive changes in technology and market structure is a long one. At first glance, there seems to be no pattern in the changes that overtook them. In some cases, the new technologies swept through quickly. In others, the transition took decades. In some, the new technologies were complex and expensive to develop. In others, the deadly technologies were simple extensions of what the leading companies already did better than anyone else. One theme common to all of these failures, however, is that the decisions that led to failure were made when the leaders in question were widely regarded as among the best companies in the world. There are two ways to resolve this paradox. One might be to conclude that firms such as Digital, IBM, Apple, and Sears must never have been well managed. Maybe they were successful because of good luck and fortuitous timing rather than good management. Maybe they finally fell on hard times because their good fortune ran out. Maybe. An alternative explanation, however, is that these failed firms were as well run as one could expect a firm managed by mortals to be. But that there is something about the way decisions get made in successful organizations that sows the seeds of eventual failure. The research reported in this program supports this latter view. It shows that in the cases of well-managed firms such as those cited above, Good management was the most powerful reason they failed to stay atop their industries. Precisely because these firms listened to their customers, invested aggressively in new technologies that would provide their customers more and better products of the sort they wanted, and because they carefully studied market trends and systematically allocated investment capital to innovations that promised the best returns, they lost their positions of leadership. What this implies at a deeper level is that many of what are now widely accepted principles of good management are, in fact, only situationally appropriate. There are times at which it is right not to listen to customers, right to invest in developing lower-performance products that promise lower margins, and right to aggressively pursue small, rather than substantial, markets. This program derives a set of rules from carefully designed research and analysis of innovative successes and failures in the disk drive and other industries that managers can use to judge when the widely accepted principles of good management should be followed and when alternative principles are appropriate.
These rules, which I call principles of disruptive innovation, show that when good companies fail, it often has been because their managers either ignored these principles or chose to fight them. Managers can be extraordinarily effective in managing even the most difficult innovations if they work to understand and harness the principles of disruptive innovation. As in many of life's most challenging endeavors, there is great value in coming to grips with the way the world works and in managing innovative efforts in ways that accommodate such forces. The innovator's dilemma is intended to help a wide range of managers, consultants, and academics in manufacturing and service businesses, high-tech or low, in slowly evolving or rapidly changing environments. Given that aim, technology, as used in this audio program, means the processes by which an organization transforms labor, capital, materials, and information into products and services of greater value. All firms have technologies. A retailer like Sears employs a particular technology to procure, present, sell, and deliver products to its customers while a discount warehouse retailer like Price Costco employs a different technology. This concept of technology therefore extends beyond engineering and manufacturing to encompass a range of marketing, investment, and managerial processes. Innovation refers to a change in one of these technologies. After touching on our understanding of the innovator's dilemma, why and under what circumstances new technologies have caused great firms to fail. This program prescribes managerial solutions to the dilemma. How executives can simultaneously do what is right for the near-term health of their established businesses while focusing adequate resources on the disruptive technologies that ultimately could lead to their downfall. The disk drive industry is an ideal field for studying failure because rich data about it exist, and because, in the words of Harvard Business School Dean Kim B. Clark, it is fast history. In just a few years, market segments, companies, and technologies have emerged, matured, and declined. Only twice in the six times that new architectural technologies have emerged in this field has the industry's dominant firm maintained its lead in the subsequent generation. This repetitive pattern of failure in the disk drive industry allowed me first to develop a preliminary framework that explained why the best and largest firms in the early generations of this industry failed, and then to test this framework across subsequent cycles in the industry's history to see whether it was robust enough to continue to explain failures among the industry's more recent leaders. The failure framework I've developed is built upon three findings from this study. The first is that there is a strategically important distinction between what I call sustaining technologies and those that are disruptive. These concepts are very different from the incremental versus radical distinction that has characterized many studies of this problem. Second, the pace of technological progress can, and often does, outstrip what markets need.
This means that the relevance and competitiveness of different technological approaches can change with respect to different markets over time. And third, customers and financial structures of successful companies color heavily the sorts of investments that appear to be attractive to them relative to certain types of entering firms. Most new technologies foster improved product performance. I call these sustaining technologies. Some sustaining technologies can be discontinuous or radical in character, while others are of an incremental nature. What all sustaining technologies have in common is that they improve the performance of established products along the dimensions of performance that mainstream customers in major markets have historically valued. Most technological advances in a given industry are sustaining in character. An important finding revealed in this program is that rarely have even the most radically difficult sustaining technologies precipitated the failure of leading firms. Occasionally, however, disruptive technologies emerge, innovations that result in worse product performance, at least in the near term. Ironically, in each of the instances studied in this program, it was disruptive technology that precipitated the leading firm's failure. Disruptive technologies bring to a market a very different value proposition than had been available previously. Generally, disruptive technologies underperform established products in mainstream markets. But they have other features that a few fringe, and generally new customers value. Products based on disruptive technologies are typically cheaper, simpler, smaller, and frequently more convenient to use. There are many examples in addition to the personal desktop computer and discount retailing examples cited above. Small off-road motorcycles introduced in North America and Europe by Honda, Kawasaki, and Yamaha were disruptive technologies relative to the powerful over-the-road cycles made by Harley-Davidson and BMW. Transistors were disruptive technologies relative to vacuum tubes. In the near future, Internet appliances may become disruptive technologies to suppliers of personal computer hardware and software. The second element of the failure framework the observation that technologies can progress faster than market demand means that in their efforts to provide better products than their competitors and earn higher prices and margins, suppliers often overshoot their market. They give customers more than they need or ultimately are willing to pay for. And more importantly, it means that disruptive technologies that may underperform today relative to what users in the market demand, may be fully performance competitive in that same market tomorrow. Many shoppers who in 1965 felt they had to shop at department stores to be assured of quality and selection, for example, now satisfy those needs quite well at Target and Walmart. The last element of the failure framework the conclusion by established companies that investing aggressively in disruptive technologies is not a rational financial decision for them to make 
has three bases. First, disruptive products are simpler and cheaper. They generally promise lower margins, not greater profits. Second, disruptive technologies typically are first commercialized in emerging or insignificant markets. And third, leading firms' most profitable customers generally don't want, and indeed initially can't use, products based on disruptive technologies. By and large, a disruptive technology is initially embraced by the least profitable customers in a market. Hence, most companies with a practice discipline of listening to their best customers and identifying new products that promise greater profitability and growth are rarely able to build a case for investing in disruptive technologies until it is too late. This program defines the problem of disruptive technologies and describes how they can be managed. Although the solution to disruptive technologies cannot be found in the standard toolkit of good management, there are, in fact, sensible ways to deal effectively with this challenge. Every company in every industry works under certain forces, laws of organizational nature, that act powerfully to define what that company can and cannot do. Managers faced with disruptive technologies fail their companies when these forces overpower them. By analogy, the ancients who attempted to fly by strapping feathered wings to their arms and flapping with all their might as they leapt from high places invariably failed. Despite their dreams and hard work, they were fighting against some very powerful forces of nature. No one could be strong enough to win this fight. Flight became possible only after people came to understand the relevant natural laws and principles that defined how the world worked, the law of gravity, Bernoulli's principle, and the concepts of lift, drag, and resistance. When people then designed flying systems that recognized or harnessed the power of these laws and principles, rather than fighting them, they were finally able to fly to heights and distances that were previously unimaginable. The objective of this program is to propose the existence of five laws or principles of disruptive technology. As in the analogy with manned flight, these laws are so strong that managers who ignore or fight them are nearly powerless to pilot their companies through a disruptive technology storm. I will show, however, that if managers can understand and harness these forces rather than fight them, they can, in fact, succeed spectacularly when confronted with disruptive technological change. I'm very confident that the great managers about whom this program has been created will be very capable on their own of finding the answers that best fit their circumstances. But they must first understand what has caused those circumstances and what forces will affect the feasibility of their solutions. Here's a summary of these principles and what managers can do to harness or accommodate them. Principle number one. Companies depend on customers and investors for resources. 
The history of the disk drive industry shows that the established firms stayed atop wave after wave of sustaining technologies, that is, technologies that their customers needed, while consistently stumbling over simpler, disruptive ones. This evidence supports the theory of resource dependence, which states that while managers may think they control the flow of resources in their firms, in the end, it is really customers and investors who dictate how money will be spent, because companies with investment patterns that don't satisfy their customers and investors don't survive. The highest performing companies, in fact, are those that are the best at this. That is, they have well-developed systems for killing ideas that their customers don't want. As a result, these companies find it very difficult to invest adequate resources in disruptive technologies, lower-margin opportunities that their customers don't want, until their customers want them, and by then, it is too late. Shortly, I'll suggest a way for managers to align or harness this law with their efforts to confront disruptive technology. With few exceptions, the only instances in which mainstream firms have successfully established a timely position in a disruptive technology were those in which the firm's managers set up an autonomous organization charged with building a new and independent business around the disruptive technology. Such organizations, free of the power of the customers of the mainstream company, ensconce themselves among a different set of customers, those who want the products of the disruptive technology. In other words, companies can succeed in disruptive technologies when their managers align their organizations with the forces of resource dependence rather than ignoring or fighting them. Principle number two. Small markets don't solve the growth needs of large companies. Disruptive technologies typically enable new markets to emerge. There is strong evidence showing that companies entering these emerging markets early have significant first-mover advantages over later entrants. And yet, as these companies succeed and grow larger, it becomes progressively difficult for them to enter the even newer small markets destined to become the large ones of the future. To maintain their share prices and create internal opportunities for employees to extend the scope of their responsibilities, successful companies need to continue to grow. But while a $40 million company needs to find just $8 million in revenues to grow at 20% in the subsequent year, a $4 billion company needs to find $800 million in new sales. No new markets are that large. As a consequence, the larger and more successful an organization becomes, the weaker the argument that emerging markets can remain useful engines for growth. Many large companies adopt a strategy of waiting until new markets are large enough to be interesting. But evidence suggests this is not often a successful strategy. Those large established firms that have successfully seized strong positions in the new markets enabled by disruptive technologies 
have done so by giving responsibility to commercialize the disruptive technology to an organization whose size matched the size of the targeted market. Small organizations can most easily respond to the opportunities for growth in a small market. The evidence is strong that formal and informal resource allocation processes make it very difficult for large organizations to focus adequate energy and talent on small markets, even when logic says they might be big someday. Principle number three. Markets that don't exist can't be analyzed. Sound market research and good planning, followed by execution according to plan, are hallmarks of good management. When applied to sustaining technological innovation, these practices are invaluable. In dealing with disruptive technologies leading to new markets, however, market researchers and business planners have consistently dismal records. In fact, based upon the evidence from the disk drive, motorcycle, and microprocessor industries, the only thing we may know for sure when we read experts' forecasts about how large emerging markets will become is that they are wrong. In many instances, leadership and sustaining innovations, about which information is known and for which plans can be made, is not competitively important. In such cases, technology followers do about as well as technology leaders. It is in disruptive innovations, where we know least about the market, that there are such strong first-mover advantages. This is the innovator's dilemma. Companies whose investment processes demand quantification of market sizes and financial returns before they can enter a market, get paralyzed, or make serious mistakes when faced with disruptive technologies. They demand market data when none exists, and make judgments based upon financial projections when neither revenues or costs can, in fact, be known. Using planning and marketing techniques that were developed to manage sustaining technologies in the very different context of disruptive ones is an exercise in flapping wings. Later, I'll talk about a different approach to strategy and planning that recognizes the law that the right markets and the right strategy for exploiting them cannot be known in advance. Called discovery-based planning, it suggests that managers assume that forecasts are wrong rather than right, and that the strategy they have chosen to pursue may likewise be wrong. Investing and managing under such assumptions drives managers to develop plans for learning what needs to be known, a much more effective way to confront disruptive technologies successfully. Principle number four. An organization's capabilities define its disabilities. When managers tackle an innovation problem, they instinctively work to assign capable people to the job. But once they've found the right people, too many managers then assume that the organization in which they'll work will also be capable of succeeding at the task. And that is dangerous. 
because organizations have capabilities that exist independently of the people who work within them. An organization's capabilities reside in two places. The first is in its processes, the methods by which people have learned to transform inputs of labor, energy, materials, information, cash, and technology into outputs of higher value. The second is in the organization's values, which are the criteria that managers and employees in the organization use when making prioritization decisions. People are quite flexible in that they can be trained to succeed at quite different things. An employee of IBM, for example, can quite readily change the way he or she works in order to work successfully in a small startup company. But processes and values are not flexible. A process that is effective at managing the design of a mini-computer, for example, would be ineffective at managing the design of a desktop personal computer. Similarly, values that cause employees to prioritize projects to develop high-margin products cannot simultaneously accord priority to low-margin products. The very processes and values that constitute an organization's capabilities in one context define its disabilities in another context. Later in this program, I'll present a framework that can help a manager understand where in his or her organization its capabilities and disabilities reside. It offers tools that managers can use to create new capabilities when the processes and values of the present organization would render it incapable of successfully addressing a new problem. Principle number five. Technology supply may not equal market demand. Disruptive technologies, though they initially can only be used in small markets remote from the mainstream, are disruptive because they subsequently can become fully performance competitive within the mainstream market against established products. This happens because the pace of technological progress in products frequently exceeds the rate of performance improvement that mainstream customers demand or can absorb. As a consequence, products whose features and functionality closely match market needs today often follow a trajectory of improvement by which they overshoot mainstream market needs tomorrow. And products that seriously underperform today relative to customer expectations in mainstream markets may become directly performance competitive tomorrow. I will show that when this happens, the basis of competition, that is, the criteria by which customers choose one product over another, changes. When the performance of two or more competing products has improved beyond what the market demands, customers can no longer base their choice upon which is the higher performing product. The basis of product choice often evolves from functionality to reliability, then to convenience, and ultimately to price. Many students of business have described phases of the product life cycle in various ways. But I will propose that the phenomenon in which product performance 
overshoots market demands is the primary mechanism driving shifts in the phases of the product life cycle. In their efforts to stay ahead by developing competitively superior products, many companies don't realize the speed at which they are moving up market, oversatisfying the needs of their original customers as they race the competition toward higher performance, higher margin markets. In doing so, they create a vacuum at lower price points, into which competitors employing disruptive technologies can enter. Will the companies that currently lead their industries using old technologies survive attacks from new ones? My hope is that the future might be different than the past. I believe that the future can be different if managers will recognize these disruptions for what they are and address them properly. This program is built upon detailed case studies of a few companies that succeeded and some that failed when faced with disruptive technological change. Just as in our analogy to man's finally learning to fly when aviators ultimately came to understand and either harness or accommodate some fundamental laws of nature, these case studies show that those executives who succeeded tended to manage by a very different set of rules than those that failed. How did the successful managers harness the five principles of disruptive technology to their advantage? First, they embedded projects to develop and commercialize disruptive technologies within an organization whose customers needed them. When managers aligned a disruptive innovation with the right customers, customer demand increased the probability that the innovation would get the resources it needed. Second, they placed projects to develop disruptive technologies in organizations small enough to get excited about small opportunities and small wins. Third, they planned to fail early and inexpensively in the search for the market for a disruptive technology. They found that their markets generally coalesced through an iterative process of trial, learning, and trial again. Fourth, they utilized some of the resources of the mainstream organization to address the disruption, but they were careful not to leverage its processes and values. They created different ways of working within an organization whose values and cost structure were turned to the disruptive task at hand. Fifth, when commercializing disruptive technologies, they found or developed new markets that valued the attributes of the disruptive products rather than search for a technological breakthrough, so that the disruptive product could compete as a sustaining technology in mainstream markets. Now, let's hear in more detail how managers can address and harness these principles. Give responsibility for disruptive technologies to organizations whose customers need them. Most executives would like to believe that they're in charge of their organizations, that they make the crucial decisions, and that when they decide that something should be done, everyone snaps to and executes. In practice, however, it is a company's customers who effectively control what it can and cannot do. 
In the disk drive industry, companies were willing to bet enormous amounts on technologically risky projects when it was clear that their customers needed the resulting products. But they were unable to muster the wherewithal to execute much simpler disruptive projects if existing, profitable customers didn't need the products. This observation supports a somewhat controversial theory called resource dependence, propounded by a minority of management scholars, which posits that companies' freedom of action is limited to satisfying the needs of those entities outside the firm that give it the resources it needs to survive. This primarily means customers and investors. Drawing heavily upon concepts from biological evolution, resource-dependence theorists assert that organizations will survive and prosper only if their staffs and systems serve the needs of customers and investors by providing them with the products, services, and profit they require. Organizations that do not will ultimately die off, starved of the revenues they need to survive. Hence. Through this survival of the fittest mechanism, those firms that rise to prominence in their industries generally will be those whose people and processes are most keenly tuned to giving their customers what they want. Resource-dependence theorists conclude that the real role of managers in companies whose people and systems are well adapted to survival is therefore only a symbolic one. For those of us who have managed companies, consulted for management, or taught future managers, this is a most disquieting thought. We are there to manage, to make a difference, to formulate and implement strategy, to accelerate growth and improve profits. Resource dependence violates our very reason for being. Nonetheless, the findings reported in this program provide rather stunning support for the theory of resource dependence, especially for the notion that the customer-focused resource allocation and decision-making processes of successful companies are far more powerful in directing investments than are executives' decisions. Clearly, customers wield enormous power in directing a firm's investments. What, then, should managers do when faced with a disruptive technology that the company's customers explicitly do not want? One option is to convince everyone in the firm that the company should pursue it anyway, that it has long-term strategic importance despite rejection by the customers who pay the bills and despite lower profitability than the upmarket alternatives. The other option would be to create an independent organization and embed it among emerging customers that do need the technology. Which works best? Managers who choose the first option essentially are picking a fight with a powerful tendency of organizational nature, that customers, not managers, essentially control the investment patterns of a company. By contrast, managers who choose the second option align themselves with this tendency, harnessing rather than fighting its power. The cases presented shortly will provide strong evidence that the second option offers far higher probabilities of success than the first. The mechanism through which customers control the investments of a firm is the resource allocation process. 
the process that determines which initiatives get staff and money and which don't. Resource allocation and innovation are two sides of the same coin. Only those new product development projects that do get adequate funding, staffing, and management attention have a chance to succeed. Those that are starved of resources will languish. Hence, the patterns of innovation in a company will mirror quite closely the patterns in which resources are allocated. Good resource allocation processes are designed to weed out proposals that customers don't want. When these decision-making processes work well, if customers don't want a product, it won't get funded. If they do want it, it will. This is how things must work in great companies. They must invest in things customers want, and the better they become at doing this, the more successful they will be. It is possible to break out of this system of customer control, however. Three cases in the history of the disk drive industry demonstrate how managers can develop strong market positions in a disruptive technology. In two cases, managers harnessed, rather than fought, the forces of resource dependence. They spun out independent companies to commercialize the disruptive technology. In the third, the manager chose to fight these forces and survived the project, exhausted. Quantum Corporation, a leading maker of 8-inch drives sold in the mini-computer market in the early 1980s, completely missed the advent of 5.25-inch drives. It introduced its first versions nearly four years after those drives first appeared in the market. As the 5.25-inch pioneers began to invade the mini-computer market from below, quantum sales began to sag. In 1984, several quantum employees saw a potential market for a thin 3.5-inch drive plugged into an expansion slot in IBM XT and AT-class desktop computers. Drives that would be sold to personal computer users rather than the OEM mini-computer manufacturers that had accounted for all of Quantum's revenue. They determined to leave Quantum and start a new firm to commercialize their idea. Rather than let them leave unencumbered, however, Quantum's executives financed and retained 80% ownership of this spin-off venture, called Plus Development Corporation and set the company up in different facilities. It was a completely self-sufficient organization, with its own executive staff and all of the functional capabilities required in an independent company. PLUS was extremely successful. It designed and marketed its drives, but had them manufactured under contract by Matsushita Kotobuki Electronics, MKE, in Japan. As sales of Quantum's line of 8-inch drives began to evaporate in the mid-1980s, they were offset by Plus's growing hard-card revenues. By 1987, sales of Quantum's 8- and 5.25-inch products had largely disappeared. Quantum then purchased the remaining 20% of Plus, essentially closed down the old corporation, and installed Plus's executives in Quantum's most senior positions. They then reconfigured Plus's 3.5-inch products to appeal to OEM desktop computer makers, 
such as Apple. Just as the capacity vector for 3.5-inch drives was invading the desktop market, Quantum, thus reconstituted as a 3.5-inch drive maker, has aggressively adopted sustaining component technology innovations, moving up market toward engineering workstations, and has also successfully negotiated the sustaining architectural innovation into 2.5-inch drives. By 1994, the new Quantum had become the largest unit volume producer of disk drives in the world. Control Data Corporation affected the same self-reconstitution. Once, CDC was the dominant manufacturer of 14-inch drives sold into the OEM market between 1965 and 1982. Its market share fluctuated between 55 and 62 percent. When the 8-inch architecture emerged in the late 1970s, however, CDC missed it by three years. The company never captured more than a fraction of the 8-inch market, and those 8-inch drives that it did sell were sold almost exclusively to defend its established customer base of mainframe computer manufacturers. The reason was resources and managerial emphasis. Engineers and marketers at the company's principal Minneapolis facility kept getting pulled off the eight-inch program to resolve problems in the launch of next-generation fourteen-inch products for CDC's mainstream customers. CDC launched its first five-point-two-five-inch model two years after Seagate's pioneering product appeared in nineteen eighty. This time, however, CDC located its 5.25-inch effort in Oklahoma City. This was done, according to one manager, not to escape CDC's Minneapolis engineering culture, but to isolate the 5.25-inch product group from the company's mainstream customers. Although it was late in the market and never regained its former dominant position. CDC's foray into 5.25-inch drives was profitable, and at times the firm commanded a 20% share of higher-capacity 5.25-inch drives. Micropolis Corporation, an early disk drive leader founded in 1978 to make 8-inch drives, was the only other industry player to successfully make the transition to a disruptive platform. It did not use the spin-out strategy that had worked for quantum and control data, however, choosing instead to manage the change from within the mainstream company. But even this exception supports the rule that customers exert exceptionally powerful influence over the investments that firms can undertake successfully. Micropolis began to change in 1982 when founder and CEO Stuart Mabin. Intuitively perceived the trajectories of market demand and technology supply, and decided that the firm should become primarily a maker of 5.25-inch drives. While initially hoping to keep adequate resources focused on developing its next generation of 8-inch drives, so that Micropolis could straddle both markets, he assigned the company's premier engineers to the 5.25-inch program. Mabin recalls that it took 100% of my time and energy for 18 months to keep adequate resources focused on the 5.25-inch program, 
because the organization's own mechanisms allocated resources to where the customers were, 8-inch drives. By 1984, Micropolis had failed to keep pace with competition in the mini-computer market for disk drives and withdrew its remaining 8-inch models. With Herculean effort, however, it did succeed in its 5.25-inch programs. In making the transition, Micropolis had to walk away from every one of its major customers and replace the lost revenues with sales of the new product line to an entirely different group of desktop computer makers. Mabin remembers the experience as the most exhausting of his life. Earlier, exploring the image of how people learn to fly, I noted that all attempts had ended in failure as long as they consisted of fighting fundamental laws of nature. But once laws such as gravity, Bernoulli's principle, and the notions of lift, drag, and resistance began to be understood, and flying machines were designed that accounted for or harnessed those laws, people flew quite successfully. By analogy, this is what quantum and controlled data did. By embedding independent organizations within an entirely different value network, where they were dependent upon the appropriate set of customers for survival, those managers harnessed the powerful forces of resource dependence. The CEO of Micropolis fought them, but he won a rare and costly victory. Disruptive technologies have had deadly impact in many industries. Let's look at the effect of disruptive technologies in three industries, computers, retailing, and printers, to highlight how the only companies in those industries that established strong market positions in the disruptive technologies were those which, like quantum and controlled data, harnessed rather than fought the forces of resource dependence. Quite naturally, the computer industry and the disk drive industry have parallel histories because value networks of the latter are embedded in those of the former. IBM, the computer industry's first leader, sold its mainframe computers to the central accounting and data processing departments of large organizations. The emergence of the mini-computer represented a disruptive technology to IBM and its competitors. Their customers had no use for it. It promised lower, not higher, margins, and the market initially was significantly smaller. As a result, the makers of mainframes ignored the mini-computer for years, allowing a set of entrants, Digital Equipment, Data General, Prime, Wang, and Nixdorf, to create and dominate that market. IBM ultimately introduced its own line of mini-computers, but it did so primarily as a defensive measure when the capabilities of many computers had advanced to the point that they were performance competitive with the computing needs of some of IBM's customers. Similarly, none of the makers of many computers became a significant factor in the desktop personal computer market, because to them, the desktop computer was a disruptive technology. The PC market was created by another set of entrants, including Apple, Commodore, Tandy, and IBM. The many computer makers were exceptionally prosperous and highly regarded by investors, the business press, and students of good management until the late 1980s, 
when the technological trajectory of the desktop computer intersected with the performance demanded by those who had previously bought mini-computers. The missile-like attack of the desktop computer from below severely wounded every mini-computer maker. Several of them failed. None established a viable position in the desktop personal computer value network. A similar sequence of events characterized the emergence of the portable computer, where the market was created and dominated by a set of entrants like Toshiba, Sharp, and Zenith. Apple and IBM, the leading desktop makers, did not introduce portable models until the portable's performance trajectory intersected with the computing needs of their customers. Probably none of these firms has been so deeply wounded by disruptive technology as digital equipment. DEC fell from fortune to folly in just a few years as standalone workstations and networked desktop computers obviated most customers' needs for many computers almost overnight. DEC didn't stumble for lack of trying, of course. Four times between 1983 and 1995, it introduced lines of personal computers targeted at consumers, products that were technologically much simpler than DEC's mini-computers. But four times it failed to build businesses in this value network that were perceived within the company as profitable. Four times it withdrew from the personal computer market. Why? DEC launched all four forays from within the mainstream company. For all of the reasons recounted, even though executive-level decisions lay behind the move into the PC business, those who made the day-to-day -day resource allocation decisions in the company never saw the sense in investing the necessary money, time, and energy in low-margin products that their customers didn't want. Higher performance initiatives that promised upscale margins, such as DEC's superfast alpha microprocessor and its adventure into mainframe computers, captured the resources instead. In trying to enter the desktop personal computing business from within its mainstream organization, DEC was forced to straddle the two different cost structures intrinsic to two different value networks. It simply couldn't hack away enough overhead costs to be competitive in low-end personal computers because it needed those costs to remain competitive in its higher-performance products. Yet IBM's success in the first five years of the personal computing industry stands in stark contrast to the failure of the other leading mainframe and mini-computer makers to catch the disruptive desktop computing wave. How did IBM do it? It created an autonomous organization in Florida, far away from its New York State headquarters, that was free to procure components from any source, to sell through its own channels, and to forge a cost structure appropriate to the technological and competitive requirements of the personal computing market. The organization was free to succeed along metrics of success that were relevant to the personal computing market. In fact, some have argued that IBM's subsequent decision to link its personal computer division much more closely to its mainstream organization was an important factor in IBM's difficulties in maintaining its profitability and market share in the personal computer industry.
It seems to be very difficult to manage the peaceful, unambiguous coexistence of two cost structures and two models for how to make money within a single company. The conclusion that a single organization might simply be incapable of competently pursuing disruptive technology while remaining competitive in mainstream markets bothers some can-do managers. And, in fact, most managers try to do exactly what Micropolis and DEC did, maintain their competitive intensity in the mainstream while simultaneously trying to pursue disruptive technology. The evidence is strong that such efforts rarely succeed. Position in one market will suffer unless two separate organizations embedded within the appropriate value networks pursue their separate customers. In few industries has the impact of disruptive technology been felt so pervasively as in retailing, where discounters seized dominance from traditional department and variety stores. The technology of discount retailing was disruptive to traditional operations because the quality of service and selection offered by discounters played havoc with the accustomed metrics of quality retailing. Moreover, the cost structure required to compete profitably in discount retailing was fundamentally different than that which department stores had developed to compete within their value networks. The first discount store was Corvette's which began operating a number of outlets in New York in the mid-1950s. Corvettes and its imitators operated at the very low end of retailing's product line, selling nationally known brands of standard hard goods at 20 to 40% below department store prices. They focused on products that sold themselves because customers already knew how to use them. Relying on national brand image to establish the value and quality of their products, these discounters eliminated the need for knowledgeable salespeople. They also focused on the group of customers least attractive to mainstream retailers, young wives of blue-collar workers with young children. This was counter to the upscale formulas department stores historically had used to define quality retailing and to improve profits. Discounters didn't accept lower profits than those of traditional retailers, however. They just earned their profits through a different formula. In the simplest terms, retailers cover their costs through the gross margin, or markup, they charge over the cost of the merchandise they sell. Traditional department stores historically marked merchandise up by 40% and turned their inventory over four times in a year. That is, they earned 40% on the amount they invested in inventory four times during the year, for a total return on inventory investment of 160%. Variety stores earned somewhat lower profits through a formula similar to that used by the department stores. Discount retailers earned a return on inventory investment similar to that of department stores, but through a different model. Low gross margins and high inventory turns. Discounters then took advantage of their cost structure to move up market and seize share from competing traditional retailers at a stunning rate. First, at the low end, in brand name hard goods such as hardware, small appliances, and luggage, and later in home furnishings and clothing. 
their share of retailing revenues in the categories of goods they sold rose from 10% in 1960 to nearly 40% a scant six years later. A few of the leading traditional retailers, notably S.S. Kresge, F.W. Woolworth, and Dayton Hudson, saw the disruptive approach coming and invested early. None of the other major retail chains, including Sears, Montgomery Ward, J.C. Penney, and R.H. Macy, made a significant attempt to create a business in discount retailing. Kresge, with its Kmart chain, and Dayton Hudson, with the Target chain, succeeded. They both created focused discount retailing organizations that were independent from their traditional business. They recognized and harnessed the forces of resource dependence. By contrast, Woolworth failed in its venture, Woolco, trying to launch it from within the F.W. Woolworth Variety Store Company. A detailed comparison of the approaches of Kresge and Woolworth, which started from very similar positions, lends additional insight into why establishing independent organizations to pursue disruptive technology seems to be a necessary condition for success. S.S. Kresge, then the world's second-largest variety store chain, began studying discount retailing in 1957, while discounting was still in its infancy. By 1961, both Kresge and its rival, F.W. Woolworth, the world's largest variety store operator, had announced initiatives to enter discount retailing. Both firms opened stores in 1962, within three months of each other. The performance of the Woolco and Kmart ventures they launched, however, subsequently differed dramatically. A decade later, Kmart sales approached $3.5 billion, while Wilco sales were languishing unprofitably at $0.9 billion. In making its commitment to discount retailing, Kresge decided to exit the variety store business entirely. In 1959, it hired a new CEO, Harry Cunningham, whose sole mission was to convert Kresge into a discounting powerhouse. Cunningham, in turn, brought in an entirely new management team, so that by 1961, there was not a single operating vice president, regional manager, assistant regional manager, or regional merchandise manager who was not new on the job. In 1961, Cunningham stopped opening any new variety stores, embarking instead on a program of closing about 10% of Kresge's existing variety operations each year. This represented a wholesale refocusing of the company on discount retailing. Woolworth, on the other hand, attempted to support a program of sustaining improvements in technology, capacity, and facilities in its core variety store businesses while simultaneously investing in disruptive discounting. The managers charged with improving the performance of Woolworth's variety stores were also charged with building the largest chain of discount houses in America. CEO Robert Kirkwood asserted that Woolco would not conflict with the company's plans for growth and expansion in the regular variety store operations, and that no existing stores would be converted to a discount format. Indeed, as discount retailing hit its most frenzied expansion phase in the 1960s, 
Woolworth was opening new variety stores at the pace it had set in the 1950s. Unfortunately, but predictably, Woolworth proved unable to sustain within a single organization the two different cultures and two different models of how to make a profit that were required to be successful in variety and discount retailing. By 1967, it had dropped the term discount from all Woolco advertising, adopting the term promotional department store instead. Although initially, Woolworth had set up a separate administrative staff for its Woolco operation, by 1971, more rational, cost-conscious heads had prevailed. In a move designed to increase sales per square foot in both Woolco and Woolworth divisions, the two subsidiaries have been consolidated operationally on a regional basis. Company officials say the consolidation, which involves buying offices, distribution facilities, and management personnel at the regional level, will help both to develop better merchandise and more efficient stores. Woolco will gain the benefits of Woolworth's buying resources, distribution facilities, and additional expertise in developing specialty departments. In return, Woolworth will gain Woolco's know-how in locating, designing, promoting, and operating large stores over 100,000 square feet. What was the impact of this cost-saving consolidation? It provided more evidence that two models for how to make money cannot peacefully coexist within a single organization. Within a year of this consolidation, Woolco had increased its markups such that its gross margins were the highest in the discount industry, about 33%. In the process, its inventory turns fell from the seven times it originally had achieved to four times. The formula for profit that had long sustained F.W. Woolworth, 35% margins for four inventory turns or 140% return on inventory investment, was ultimately demanded of Woolco as well. Woolco was no longer a discounter, in name or in fact. Not surprisingly, Woolworth's venture into discount retailing failed. It closed its last Woolco store in 1982. Woolworth's strategy for succeeding in disruptive discount retailing was the same as digital equipment strategy for launching its personal computer business. Both founded new ventures within the mainstream organization that had to earn money by mainstream rules, and neither could achieve the cost structure and profit model required to succeed in the mainstream value network. Hewlett-Packard's experience in the personal computer printer business illustrates how a company's pursuit of a disruptive technology by spinning out an independent organization might entail, in the end, killing another of its business units. Hewlett-Packard's storied success in manufacturing printers for personal computers becomes even more remarkable when one considers its management of the emergence of bubble jet or inkjet technology. Beginning in the mid-1980s, HP began building a huge and successful business around LaserJet printing technology. The LaserJet was a discontinuous improvement over dot matrix printing, the previously dominant personal computer printing technology, and HP built a commanding market lead. When an alternative way of translating digital signals into images on paper 
inkjet technology, first appeared, there were vigorous debates about whether laser jet or inkjet would emerge as the dominant design in personal printing. Experts lined up on both sides of the question, offering HP extensive advice on which technology would ultimately become the printer of choice on the world's desktops. Although it was never framed as such in the debates of the time, inkjet printing was a disruptive technology. It was slower than the laser jet, its resolution was worse, and its cost per printed page was higher. But the printer itself was smaller and potentially much less expensive than the laser jet. At these lower prices, it promised lower gross margin dollars per unit than the laser jet. Thus, the inkjet printer was a classic disruptive product relative to the laser jet business. Rather than place its bet exclusively with one or the other, and rather than attempt to commercialize the disruptive inkjet from within the existing printer division in Boise, Idaho, HP created a completely autonomous organizational unit located in Vancouver, Washington with responsibility for making the inkjet printer a success. It then let the two businesses compete against each other. Each has behaved classically. The LaserJet division has moved sharply upmarket in a strategy reminiscent of 14-inch drives and mainframe computers. HP's LaserJet printers can print at high speeds with exceptional resolution, handle hundreds of fonts and complicated graphics, print on two sides of the page, and serve multiple users on a network. They have also gotten larger physically. The inkjet printer isn't as good as the laser jet and may never be. But the critical question is whether the inkjet could ever be as good a printer as the personal desktop computing market demands. The answer appears to be yes and the resolution and speed of inkjet printers, while still inferior to those of laser jets, are now clearly good enough for many students, professionals, and other unnetworked users of desktop computers. HP's inkjet printer business is now capturing many of those who would formerly have been laser jet users. Ultimately, the number of users at the highest performance end of the market, toward which the laser jet division is headed, will probably become small. One of HP's businesses may, in the end, have killed another. But had HP not set up its inkjet business as a separate organization, the inkjet technology would probably have languished within the mainstream laser jet business, leaving one of the other companies now actively competing in the inkjet printer business, such as Canon, as a serious threat to HP's printer business. And by staying in the laser business as well, HP has joined IBM's mainframe business and the integrated steel companies in making a lot of money while executing an upmarket retreat.